Hi everyone, this is Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm the host of this show, In Sickness and in Health. If you like our approach to health storytelling, do me a small favor. Help us spread the word about the show. If you're on Twitter, follow us and tweet us at ISIH Podcast. Let us know what's your favorite episode and why. It'll help us bring you more and better stories on the big health issues of the day. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to In Sickness and in Health, the podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Just state your name and briefly explain who you are. Absolutely. First name is Paul. Last name is Newdigate. That is N-E-U-D-I-G-A-T-E. I'm an assistant police chief with the Cincinnati Police Department. I am currently in my 30th year of law enforcement, and I serve as one of three assistant chiefs, and I oversee uh, pretty much all the operational aspects for the Cincinnati Police Department and many of our support services, such as uh, gangs, traffic, SWAT, civil disturbance, uh, but I also uh, very blessed to have uh, our crime analysis and problem solving unit because it all plays uh, hand in hand because we do consider ourselves a, a very evidence-based and data-driven, hopefully enlightened organization, and uh, we would like to keep it that way. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that a lot of our practices have already had academic review that uh, they are successful and that we're not operating uh, in, in a vacuum, that we know that the strategies that we employ have been validated through independent research. On this episode, we're going to look at how law enforcement is using tech to address gun violence and the potential solutions and problems this new technology creates. We're also going to look at one key law enforcement agency and the technology it's forbidden to use. The Cincinnati Police Department, where Paul Newdigate is the assistant police chief, is one of the many police departments across the country that has begun using ShotSpotter as a tool to fight gun violence. Before we get into what this new technology, ShotSpotter, does, let's do a brief recap. As we've discussed in previous episodes, central to gun violence reduction efforts is whether the police can solve crimes. Not how many arrests they're making, but rather whether they're making the right arrests whether they're targeting the small group of people actually responsible for violent crimes. Digital tech and smartphone apps have made us more efficient at everything, from navigating in traffic and public transportation systems to monitoring our blood sugar, from quickly finding all kinds of information on the internet to figuring out if our food delivery order is on its way. So in the digital age, how can police departments use tech to more efficiently fight crime? Enter ShotSpotter. ShotSpotter is a gunshot detection system. Uh, it is the predominant one in the United States. There are some competitors, but I do not believe at this point that you know, they come anywhere close to providing the level of service and specificity that ShotSpotter does. In episode 18, we talked about how the Cincinnati Police Department implemented a violence reduction program based on the work of David Kennedy. This program's called SERVE the Cincinnati Initiative to Reduce Violence. According to Paul, when SERVE was first implemented, it had measured results. As time passed, Paul says, the strategy didn't keep up with the changing reality on the ground. 
by 2015, violence in Cincinnati had gone up. We really did not have a solid gun violence reduction plan in place. And as a result, we had our worst year for gun violence that we had seen in probably 15 to 20 years. We had 479 total shooting victims in the city of Cincinnati uh, for 2015. And that's when we knew that things had to change. Since then, Paul says, Cincinnati has beefed up its gun violence reduction strategy. The meat of serve with its focus on the small groups of people driving the violence, Collins, and offers of help and social services, is still going, trying to be more responsive to the needs on the ground. But in the neighborhood of Avondale, where gun violence has historically been most pervasive, the strategy included a technological upgrade. In August of 2017, the city of Cincinnati piloted ShotSpotter, a venture-backed technology out of Silicon Valley. ShotSpotter uses sensors to alert the police of gunfire without anyone needing to call 911. ShotSpotter installed 20 to 25 sensors per square mile for three miles in Avondale. Once the sensors are there, they will detect uh, gunfire impulsions. Those impulsions will get immediately transmitted back to ShotSpotter headquarters in Newark, California, where it goes through a machine algorithm to say that it is indeed gunfire. After the shot spotter algorithm determines it's gunfire, human beings listen to the recordings to reconfirm the sound was made by a gunshot. And then usually what will happen is within 45 to 60 seconds after the gunfire is detected, it will show up on our computers. So we'll come to an app right on your phone and tell us usually within 82 feet or 25 meters exactly where that gunfire is occurring. For Paul, ShotSpotter has really sped up the process of responding to gunshots. Um, One of the big benefits that we find with ShotSpotter is if we're reliant on the citizenry to call it in, it has to go through several layers. It goes through the citizen to a 911 operator who has to take the information. Uh, Then the 911 operator has to enter that information, send it to a call taker, call taker has to read the information, find an available car, dispatch them, once again relay that information. That whole process could take up to three, four, five minutes, maybe more. The way it is now, ShotSpotter cuts out numerous layers of that reporting, and it will show up within 45 to 60 seconds on my phone, tell me exactly where that is. Paul says it's also improved officer safety. When the community calls in a shots fired run, they're guesstimating. Shots can reverberate where historically, if someone calls it in, there's a very good chance that as an officer is driving through the actual kill zone or where someone has been firing shots on the way to where they believe the shots fired run is now. Now when we receive that run, we can go to that specific location. Uh, We're much safer, much more tactical in doing so uh, to make sure that uh, our officers are not putting themselves into jeopardy. And according to Paul, Cincinnati has seen positive results. The number of shooting victims in Avondale uh, was half in 2018 of what it was previously in 2017. 2017, we had 36 shooting victims in Avondale. We had 18 last year. As part of an overall violence reduction strategy, uh, Shotspowder has been very beneficial for us. 
But it's hard to parse out to what extent ShotSpotter alone can be credited for these results. ShotSpotter is part of a comprehensive violence reduction strategy with many moving parts, all being implemented at the same time. Currently, more than 90 cities throughout the U.S. use ShotSpotter, and elsewhere, the impact on gun shootings have been mixed. Some municipalities have discontinued the service, saying the technology wasn't as accurate as they'd hoped, that it often raised false alarms, and that other times it completely missed gunshots that were actually fired. According to Paul, what's made ShotSpotter so successful in Cincinnati is not only the technology itself, which continues to improve, but also the way the Cincinnati PD has applied it to their overall efforts. We treat every activation like a priority one response, just as if someone from the community is calling and saying there is an active gun battle or we have a shooting victim. We respond quickly. We, you know, we canvas, we triage for victims, witnesses, suspects. After we stabilize the scene, we knock on doors. We let the community know what's occurring, that we are there, that there were shots fired. Not only is for us, is it the quick response, but we also do a very thorough job of collecting any trace evidence, any ballistic evidence that's left at the scene, and we have 100% comprehensive collection, and we enter that uh, within 24 to 48 hours into the ATF's National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, and that is the other piece. This comprehensive collection allows them to identify links between different offenses. We canvas. We process those shell casings. We enter them into NIBIN. NIBIM is the acronym for the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. It's a tool that evaluates and compares images of shell casings against those used in other crimes. And what those shell casings will tell us in many times is this wasn't just someone out here randomly shooting in the air. The gun that they were shooting is linked to two other felonious assaults, a couple robberies, ShotSpotter helps the Cincinnati Police Department to respond more quickly on the scene, but also allows them to plan ahead and better design their patrol routes. You know, our hotspot patrols are predicated on uh, timely data analysis. You know, they change weekly and sometimes they will change daily based on what, what the data shows. And, um, you know, those small locations will get a, a concentrated dose of officers. Um, But those are small locations scattered throughout the city and and not germane to the entire uh, geographical footprint. As enthusiastic as he is about ShotSpotter, Paul stresses that it's not a magic bullet. What we have working for us right now is a series of, you know, competing and interlocking strategies. You know, we still utilize group violence interruption, but we have really tweaked our process. So we become much more refined in identifying those individuals that are wreaking havoc and pulling the trigger in our communities. So between our very refined process, our reliance on data, the use of technology, We went from 479 shooting victims in 2015 to 336 last year, which was the best in 15 years. If we need to evolve into something different next year because it's not working, we absolutely will. While it's hard to draw a direct connection between ShotSpotter and the drop in gun shootings in Cincinnati, Paul does think ShotSpotter has helped improve relations between the Cincinnati PD and the Avondale community. What I can tell you is... 
we do believe it's also helped uh, improve the reputation of the police in the community. So what we have found with ShotSpotter in Avondale is that we only get a companion call 16% of the time that ShotSpotter is activated. So 84% of the time, gunshots are occurring. We don't even get a call from the community. And that's due to a number of factors. Many times they feel that the police don't care. And what I would offer is if we're only responding 16% of the time that there's gunfire in Avondale, I can see why the community would perceive that. Paul says his department had the foresight to survey folks in Avondale before rolling out ShotSpotter. No, it wasn't a scientific study, but it yielded some important insights. How would you rank gun violence in the Avondale community as a priority? And I believe it was like 51% said it was absolutely their top priority. And then we also asked them, how do you believe that the Cincinnati Police Department treats gun violence as a priority in your community? And I believe only 17% said that gun violence was a priority for the Cincinnati Police Department. So what I can tell you is absolutely is that the number one priority for the police department is addressing gun violence in our challenged communities, but you can see the disconnect. Earlier this year, the city of Cincinnati expanded its use of ShotSpotter to the Price Hill neighborhood. The system costs $65,000 per square mile to operate per year, and the company imposes a three-mile minimum in each neighborhood it operates in. The Avondale and Price Hill operations will cost Cincinnati $400,000 a year to operate. But the way Paul sees it, the high price tag is worth it. If we had to put cops and saturate that area, uh, we would need to add hundreds of officers to our ranks to be able to accomplish the same saturation. Manpower would be much more expensive than the tech and feel a lot more like an occupying force in the community. The ShotSpotter technology is still very much under development. One study of ShotSpotter in Philadelphia found that it actually created more work for the police. They had to investigate a lot more possible crime scenes, where they ended up finding no evidence of a shooting. And ShotSpotter isn't the only tech company developing products aimed at law enforcement. The big gorilla in this space is Palantir. Palantir is the closest we've come to making the movie Minority Report and, quote, true crime a reality. Named after the crystal ball Saruman used to spy on the people of Middle-earth in Lord of the Rings, Palantir combines data from both government and private databases to create a massive surveillance system. Police departments across the country are using it to trace a suspect's ties, not just to criminal records or networks of violent offenders, but also to financial information, social media, toll booth data, and a lot more. To predict the likelihood that an individual will commit violence or become a victim. Between 2012 and 2018, the city of New Orleans used Palantir as part of NOLA for Life, its initiative to fight murder and violent crime. Unlike other aspects of the program, the use of Palantir wasn't public knowledge at the time, which, as you can imagine, made it even more controversial. Certainly use Palantir. Um... This is Charles West, who worked for the mayor's office in New Orleans and oversaw the rollout of NOLA for Life. You might remember him from episode 19 when he discussed New Orleans' murder reduction strategy. NOLA for Life didn't make a dent in homicide and violent crime rates. And in 2016 and 2017, murders went up. 
Charles is careful to point out that they did not use Palantir's predictive capabilities. The entire conversation that sort of bubbled up recently about it being used to predict crime is just false. Uh, we actually were really careful to, uh, to make sure that we never use any of its predictive capabilities. Um, and so for us, it was just uh, a really useful data aggregation and analysis tool. Um, I understand the significant privacy concerns that any amount of data gathered by, by government raises and that we tried uh, as best as possible to rely most heavily on public data, frankly. I mean, we were pulling in data that was often already existing in other public data systems and just aggregating it in a way that allowed the analysis to be easier. So for instance, the, the network analysis that he would do following every shooting is something that used to take an officer, you know, two days or so, um, and he could do it in less than an hour. That level of efficiency is what we gained with Palantir. Whether the city used Palantir to predict crime or not, it's easy to see why it would make the public uncomfortable. After it became public knowledge the New Orleans Police Department was using Palantir, the city ended its partnership with the tech company. Palantir was already controversial. Proactive policing sounds like a good strategy, but there's a slippery slope between crime prevention and crime prediction, especially when it's about punishing people even before they've committed a crime. And Palantir has become even more controversial with reports that it's powering ICE to conduct immigration raids and deportations. It's a slippery slope that often ends up infringing on people's civil rights and liberties, and not everyone bears the cost equally. Poor people, people of color, and immigrants are usually the ones most negatively affected. When our systems become more efficient, thanks to an algorithm or a new technology, the danger is, the biases baked into those systems will be two. A study out of MIT found that facial recognition technology is a lot more accurate for white people than for people of color. This means that black and brown people are more likely to suffer harassment at the hands of police who are using facial recognition software even when they haven't committed a crime. Palantir recently filed for a patent on facial recognition adding to its already powerful data arsenal. This kind of technology is big business. It's what some are calling surveillance capitalism. Palantir was co-founded by the venture capitalist Peter Thiel. Started with seed money from the CIA, Palantir was originally developed as a military tool. It's grown into one of the highest valued tech startups. Palantir plans to go public in 2020. Its IPO is on target to be one of the biggest ever. ShotSpotter and Palantir are still unproven technologies. We don't yet know what their impact will be on public safety, whether they'll make things better or quite possibly worse, or how useful they'll be to law enforcement. But there is technology out there that law enforcement could make use of that would help them solve crimes. But we're not taking advantage of it. This isn't about buzzwords like machine learning and AI. It's a lot more straightforward and parenthetically, less lucrative.
When a police officer arrives at a crime scene and recovers a gun, one of the first steps in the investigation is to locate the gun's owner. Obviously, it doesn't mean the legal owner committed the crime, but knowing who the gun was registered to can help generate leads. Police can interview the owner to find out who he or she lent it to, who had access to it, whether the gun was stolen, and the circumstances of that theft. All leads that could help the police find the person who used the gun in a crime. In the United States, this process for finding the gun's legal owner is surprisingly low-tech. Even more surprising, given how other government agencies use similar technologies for similar purposes. The DEA could tell you exactly how many, to the pill, to the tablet, to the injection, how much um, of any, any class 4 narcotic has been shipped to you as a doctor or to a pharmacy or has been distributed from that pharmacy and to who. They can tell you every one of them. This is Mark Jones with the National Law Enforcement Partnership to Prevent Gun Violence. Mark believes that, in the same way the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, has access to this data, the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, should have similar information on guns. The data would help them be a lot more efficient. The more guns there are in a community, Mark says, the greater the likelihood criminals will get their hands on them. In the same way that more opioids there are in a community, the greater the likelihood some will end up on the black market. There's nothing, there's no place in the United States that you can go to to find out exactly how many of what kind of gun got sold to who, how much ammunition is in any one person's hand or got sold at all, ultimately. Without access to this data, Mark says, it's much harder to find out where a gun came from and who its legal owner is. I can tell you, I can go online to ATF and tell you how many guns got manufactured, how many got exported, how many got sold in the U.S. Well, we don't know. We have to use economic proxies to figure it out, like taxes on gun stores over, or, or NICS checks, the, the call for background investigations. But those are all so imprecise. NICS, N-I-C-S, stands for National Instant Criminal Background Check System. It's used by gun dealers to determine if a customer is allowed to buy a gun. But as Mark points out, the number of NICS calls only gives you an estimate. The ATF just doesn't know how many gun sales there are in the U.S. No one knows. The ATF is the only agency able to conduct what's known as a gun trace. What exactly is a gun trace? Basically everyone who's been in possession of the gun, through the supply chain, from manufacturer to dealer to buyer. But under current law, the ATF is prohibited from creating a federal registry of gun transactions. This means that while it is technologically possible to create a system where an ATF officer could type in a serial number and instantly identify the buyer of a gun, the system we currently use works more like this. When a police officer recovers a gun at a crime scene, he or she provides the gun's serial number to the ATF, along with a request for a trace. Then, workers at the ATF's National Tracing Center start making their way through a series of phone calls. First, they call the gun manufacturer and ask them to look through their records to find out which wholesaler they sold the gun to. Then they call the wholesaler and ask them to look through their records and find out what dealer they sold the gun to. And finally, the ATF worker calls the dealer itself to ask them to identify the buyer of the gun. But there's a catch. A trace documents the life of a gun only up to the point of sale by a licensed dealer. 
The gun may change hands legally several times after that in the secondary private market. In most states, only licensed dealers are required to track sales. If I own a gun and sell it to someone else on the private market, I'm not required to record that transaction with a dealer or report it to the government. These loose restrictions on private sales and transfers means there's actually no paper trail for the ATF to follow in tracing a gun. To complicate this even more, about a third of the time, a gun trace leads ATF to a dealer that's gone out of business. In these situations, tracing a gun is even more difficult, thanks in no small part to technological restrictions Congress has placed on the ATF. By law, gun dealers that have gone out of business have to turn their records over to the ATF. Let me explain what the volume of that looks like. There's a place in Martinsburg, West Virginia, called the National Tracing Center. It's a giant building, three stories high, a massive complex. Whenever any of those 140,000 gun dealers in the U.S. goes out of business, they send their records here. ATF gets an 18-wheeler full of boxes one or two times a week. They have exceeded their capacity to store records in the tracing center, these paper records in the building, so they're now all in containers. They're storing, they've been storing them now for a number of years in containers around the property that are rusting and have holes and there's water dripping on the records. By law, the ATF is not allowed to digitize these records. So instead... You've got technicians at ATF who receive these boxes. They get a literal tractor-trailer load filled stem to stern, halfway up with banker's boxes filled with multi-partite forms filled out by individual Americans buying guns. They have to separate the forms if they're stapled, and then they have to microfiche them one at a time. You heard correctly, microfiche. Remember those clunky machines at the library? You might have had to use them for a research project back in high school or college. You'd load a card or roll into the machine, turn on the backlight, and squint. And as you scrolled through the film, you'd feel increasingly more nauseous. That's microfiche. That's the technology the ATF is allowed to use in 2019, a technology that most of us stopped using over 20 years ago. And the only thing ATF can do with these records, the closest thing they can do to making them easy to search is microfiche them. If they get to them, they they are never going to get to them. They don't have the budget to do it. And Congress will not let them digitize. In an age when data is often available with a few keystrokes, federal law prohibits the ATF from creating any kind of database to search the trove of paperwork at its disposal. The National Rifle Association and other pro-gun groups have blocked efforts in Congress to create that database saying such a step would bring the country too close to a national registry and poses a threat to the Second Amendment. That means that when a gun trace leads the ATF to a dealer that went out of business, an ATF worker has to search these records by hand. If they're lucky, scrolling through a microfiche, or very often, digging through cardboard boxes filled with computer printouts, hand-scrawled index cards, and even water-stained sheets of paper. Needless to say, this slows down police work by a lot. But I guarantee you, you could do these paper files pretty fast on a, with a professional scanning company or something to get this thing done. But ATF is basically restricted from doing anything like that, because if they do it, the industry is convinced, or at least says it's convinced and has convinced Congress, that that will be a de facto registration of the firearms that were sold by these dealers. And once they're registered, the government knows where they are, and the government can come get them when they want them. They'll confiscate them. I swear to God, this is the logic that keeps our country 
from understanding what firearms commerce looks like. That's it. Gun traces, says Mark, can lead law enforcement to the gun dealers supplying straw purchasers and other criminals. Gun traces can help the police figure out how criminals are getting guns and how to crack down on gun trafficking. But we've got to bring the process of gun tracing into the 21st century. If the country knew how many Glocks got funneled to specific places, for instance, or how many Ruger 9mm or 40 caliber pistols or into a specific place and the actual population of gun owners that lived in that place and what could actually be expected of a gun store to sell in a particular place. And yet all of those guns get sold and they go someplace else. And where do they go? There's trafficking. Chicago has not one single gun store, but the police recover six to 10,000 guns a year here and have for years. How does that work? In addition to being forced to use a low-tech manual process for gun traces, the ATF is handicapped in other ways that make it harder for the agency to do its job. Since the early 2000s, the Tiart Amendments, named after former Kansas Congressman Todd Tiart, have blocked the ATF from sharing gun trace data. These are the restrictions Mark's referring to, and these restrictions are part of the reason why the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force, which we talked about in our last episode, couldn't do the work it was supposed to do. In 2010, Congress loosened these restrictions ever so slightly, but the ATF still can't share gun trace data with cities, states, researchers, or other members of the public. The ATF can only publish aggregate data. They'll show the state and they'll show breakdowns of how many guns got traced from the top 15 places, but that's it. I mean, there's, there's nothing that you can do with that information as a police chief looking at an Illinois trace report. It's, it's informative, but it's not helpful to, to do things like resource allocation or investigative focus or any of that kind of thing. Even if they had more granular data, police departments don't employ statisticians, epidemiologists, and social scientists, the kind of experts they'd need to really break down the gun trace data. And the TR amendments still block academic researchers from accessing gun trace data to collaborate with law enforcement in studying gun violence. Mark says that without the gun trace data and the ability to analyze it, law enforcement is limited in its ability to examine trends and expose corrupt dealers. As we were working on this week's episode, thinking about how federal law enforcement agencies use technology, how they collect, share, and keep data from the public, and how all of this impacts our ability to see trends, expose problems, and hold bad actors accountable. As we were doing all that, news broke. Welcome back. A database maintained by the Drug Enforcement Administration is being made public for the first time. It tracks the path After a two-year-long legal battle, the Washington Post won the right to access and make publicly available a massive government database tracking the distribution of opioids. This DEA database tracks the movement of every opioid pill in the country, every hydrocodone and oxycodone, from manufacturers to distributors to doctors and pharmacies, the entire supply chain. According to the Washington Post, the data shows that, quote, the drug industry, the pill manufacturers, wholesalers, and retailers found it profitable to flood some of the most vulnerable communities in America with billions of painkillers. They continued to move their product, and the medical community and government agencies failed to take effective action. 
even when it became apparent that these pills were fueling addiction and overdoses and were getting diverted to the streets. Policymakers, researchers, journalists, and others are using this data to understand the sheer scope of the crisis and who's accountable. So what's this got to do with gun violence? Opioids like guns are legal products. Doctors prescribe opioids because they have patients who legitimately need them. But there are also pill mills and black markets, and people whose lives are destroyed by addiction. There were red flags in the opioid sales numbers, but because the DEA, much like the ATF, was hamstrung by corporate interests and their allies in Congress, it was hard for the DEA to hold companies accountable. Much the same can be said of the ATF and its ability to police the gun industry. On the one hand, police departments across the country and other law enforcement agencies are experimenting with new digital technologies to fight violent crime in their jurisdictions. These technologies aren't tested and proven. They're expensive and may backfire when it comes to public safety. At the same time, at the federal level, Congress is blocking access to data and basic technology that experts like Mark say would have a direct and positive impact on reducing gun violence in communities across the country. Our policy agenda is essentially making sure that all firearms transactions in this country are recorded and scrutinized. If there's an individual sale or you buy a gun from a gun dealer, there's a record of it and the gun can be tracked. If you can't trace the guns, it makes investigation that much harder. And so we want to be able to to have policies in this country that allow police officers to do their job efficiently. Not just efficiently, but also safely. We have 300 million guns, more or less. We don't know who has them. We don't know where they are. We have to assume, as a law enforcement officer in this country, that every civilian you, you approach is armed. You have to, because there's so many darn guns. More on the connection between all those guns and the danger they pose to police officers' lives. That's next time on In Sickness and in Health. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Virginia, Laura, and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.